Welcome to the Treasure Time podcast. You're here with me, your host, Sophia Giblin. In this episode, I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with Paul Lindley. Paul is a business leader, entrepreneur, and children's advocate. He's the founder of Ella's Kitchen, the UK's biggest baby food company. And if that wasn't enough of an accolade, Paul's held several roles across charity and social impact organizations, including the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Organization and Sesame Workshops, who are the creators of Sesame Street. I wanted to invite Paul onto the Treasure Time podcast to talk about his new book, which is called Raising the Nation. It's a manifesto for how to build a better future for our children and for everyone else. And Paul's gone into a huge amount of research and worked with over 60 essayists to pull together this amazing book, which outlines a great starting point for lots of discussions around how we can actually change the future for our next generation. How do we make sustainable changes in childcare, in healthcare, in schooling, in education, in play? to make sure that our next generation of children grow up in a better environment than the one that we have today. I was so happy to be asked to contribute and actually write an essay which was published within the book. And my big idea, my big call to government, was to introduce every parent and child to treasure time when they start school. A bit like the reading schemes that they have at school, where children take home books to read with their parents to improve their literacy. With the Treasure Time National Play at Home programme, children would take home a box of toys and parents would get guidance on how to deliver child-led play sessions. And these play sessions would make up their first term's homework. The idea being that the one-to-one child-led play that we teach in Treasure Time is supportive of building secure attachment relationships. It helps children to express themselves, alleviate stress. Lots of children are experiencing a lot of toxic stress at the moment, and parents are as well. So play giving them an outlet to deal with that. In the episode that you'll hear today, Paul shares some key learnings and insights from across the different aspects of childhood that are featured in his book. From early years and education to digital, giving children a voice, healthcare and play. We also discuss how to empower parents, strengthen communities and also how to create policies that actually support children's well-being. Paul is very keen to make sure that children are represented as equal members of our society, where policies quite often leave them out altogether. If you want to get your hands on a copy of this book, go to raisingthenation.co.uk and take a deeper look. There are also some essays on the website that you can read. It is well worth a read. There's some really interesting ideas to challenge the narrative and challenge the status quo, challenge the way that we've been doing things and actually imagine a better world for our children. I found so much wisdom in our discussion around shifting these perspectives. And as Paul said, it's all about putting relationships at the heart of what we're doing relationships with self, relationships between parents and children, relationships with the environment, they are all the things that will help us thrive. This is all about unlocking human potential through child-centered policies. And I know you'll take away lots of powerful ideas from my chat with Paul, so let's dive in. Thank you so much for joining me today, Paul. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Lovely to see you again. And for anyone who's listening who may not be familiar with your work. Would you like to give us just a quick overview of who you are, where you've been from, what you've done and what you're doing right now? Lovely. Okay. Depressingly for me, I've been working in, on or around kids stuff about 30 years. Quite sure how that happened, but that's covered a career across Nickelodeon where I was for nearly a decade. I started off as the finance person, became the general manager there just as multi-channel television and the digital space was coming alive. Then I launched the business that that changed my life, which is Alice Kitchen, the UK's biggest baby food company, which really shook up and changed, innovated in the space of of baby food so that kids can have a better relationship with food. And we changed packaging, recipes, marketing, 
everything around baby food so that kids could have a healthier choice. I sold that company 10 years ago. And in that time now, I've been trying to use entrepreneurship to help kids live better lives, help their well-being and their welfare and their rights, really, not necessarily through business, but using entrepreneurship in other areas. So I worked for four years for Steve Carnes' chair of a child obesity task force that we set up and we reported back on that. I've founded and chair a human rights organization that has curriculum in schools that helps kids have the confidence to speak out when they see something wrong and call it out. And I sit on the board of Sesame Street in America. And in that time, I've written two books now, this one that's just out, but about six years ago, I wrote one called Little Wins, which is about the huge power of thinking like a toddler. For me, they, my hero, the hero human being, that they're the most perfect human being, I think, because of the imagination, the free thinking, the self-confidence that they have. But that means each of us had once. And if we can find some of that attitude to life that we had then, I think we would be better adults. But the full circle comes around to my book that um, is just out very recently called Raising the Nation. And it's about how uh, to build a better future for our children if we do that for everybody else. So that's a smorgasbord of my last 30 years. What an amazing career and what an amazing amount of achievement that you've had there. What is it about children that you love so much? I think, as I say, they're the most perfect human being because they're unfiltered. You know what they're thinking and what they're thinking isn't constrained by the conformity that society puts on the rest of us. They, they can do diverse thinking. They're, they're, everything is, is new or they approach new things with an openness to potential. So I think ultimately that children live the two greatest attributes, I think, uh, for, for human beings. And I think that's curiosity and bravery. And I think that's knocked out of us uh, as adults. Some of it from evolution and good things, as we do need to know the consequence of actions that we take, but far too much. And our society and our culture has got that now our children aren't living the childhoods that are beneficial to them or our society. And that's what I'm trying to do. So it's the curiosity and bravery that children have that really sparks my life. At what point did you become aware of that about children, that they are perfect humans and that curiosity and bravery? Did you always know that? I'd say the, the seminal point came when I had my own children. But when I look back, of my life, you can only you only live from the perspective, I suppose, of of the inside of your own head. And in my head, I am still a little boy. I'm still curious. I'm still questioning. Toddlers constantly ask the question, "Why?" I I still do that, and I guess that's why I became an entrepreneur. And that's why I guess when you met with failure as often, you are on your journey with entrepreneurship because not everything works straight away because you're trying to do stuff that's hard that people are telling you, you shouldn't be doing that I accept that failure and I adapt uh, from it just as all of us when we were children failed far more than we succeeded in learning to walk, for example, or, or talk. So that was me. I still think that little boy lives in my head. But when I had my children and I saw day to day the, the questions that they raised or the attitudes that they had to failure or to curiosity, uh, I, I was inspired. And then when I went on my journey, professional journey through Nickelodeon, and especially with Ella's Kitchen, seeing firsthand how their opportunities are so dependent on their life circumstances to be their, their, their full opportunity to be fulfilled, I started on this journey of how could I 
increase their individual opportunities and our benefit to our society as a whole if children thrived in childhoods and childhoods brought that real sense of perspective and hope and love and their place in our society that they're too often closed away and hidden or they're encouraged to be mini adults or to do things that will make them great adults when I think they should be doing things to make them great kids of a five-year-old or an 11-year-old or a 16-year-old, whatever it is. So all of those things really got my imagination firing and I've plowed on to try and change the things that I can. We'll come around to start talking about your book, actually, because this all ties in very beautifully. So your new book is called Raising the Nation. It's how to build a better future for our children and everyone else. And it features a number of essays from specialists in their areas. And I was very happy and thrilled to be included in that, in the chapter about play. So this book is full of inspiring ideas. It's a real call to us to think better, think bigger, think different, like you said as well, actually, let's think a little bit more like toddlers. At what point did you realize that this book is the book that you needed to write? Yeah, I'll talk for a second, but we're going to end with COVID as the moment where so many of us rethought who we are, what we're doing, where our society is going and what we may have lost along recent years. But let me go back to the 1990s before that. My career was starting. I've always been interested in new ideas and inspiration from people. And Nelson Mandela came onto the scene. And shortly after he was inaugurated as, as president of South Africa in 1995, he gave a couple of speeches in one month that really captured my imagination. And I suppose that's the seed that this book eventually germinated from. In one of his speeches, he said that there can be no keener revelation of a society's soul than in the way it treats its children. And I hadn't had children by then, but it was just the thing that captured me. Oh my goodness, that is the point of government, of trying to move society forward. We're trying to, to, to make uh, a better world for our children, and we're trying to treat them in a way that reveals who we are um, as person, a people, a, a nation. So that really uplifted me. And then in, in the following years, we had the 1997 election in the UK, where for the first time, a political party really advocated with a program around improving children's lives. Tony Blair obviously had his education, education, education mantra, but they brought short start in, they changed the criminal justice system for young people. They brought in changes to, to welfare around children's credits, and they took uh, a million children out of poverty in the next 10 years. And it was just thinking, this is, I want to be part of something like this. I want to help ride this wave and help change things. I'd launched Ella's Kitchen and I was trying to do my bit at the time with that around children and food. But then it somehow, it went all terribly wrong. And for the last 15 years, 13 years, we have really, I think, got to look at our, our nation's soul and, and, and what it reveals about ourselves. I can give you some examples, just simple statistics, really, that, that sort of really highlight where we've gone wrong. So uh, today, about three in 10 of our children um, live in poverty in this country. That is double the proportion of children who are living in poverty than when I was a child. From the work I've done in London with the Child Obesity Task Force, I know that 40% of children in London are living at an unhealthy weight. Most of them are obese already. Nearly all of them will remain obese during their lives. They will die earlier than they would otherwise have done, and they will be less productive and therefore live less fulfilled lives. 
that is a hugely grown proportion uh, year on year on year. One in six of our children live with a mental health issue. The government's own figures, that's a 60% increase just over the last three years. Something's going terribly wrong there. Then we look what we're doing around where our children are growing up. Half of the youth centers that we had in this country have disappeared since 2011. They've closed 200 playgrounds in just two years recently with a promise to uh, close uh, another 200 plus uh, by, by local councils. The opportunities of children to be children, the consequences on the health and education and, and poverty that they have are all going in the wrong direction. And then we got to COVID where we decided as country through our government and through the lockdown regulations that were put on to um, have the toughest consequences on the very people who had the least susceptibility to serious health consequences from the disease. And we opened pubs before we opened schools. What does that say about our soul as a society? And I suppose the full circle came after I did start writing the book, but when seeing the initial terms of reference for the COVID inquiry, which is on right now, they put that out to consultation, thinking that this is the inquiry that will help us learn from the mistakes we made and help us have a better strategy for pandemics in the future. That's what they thought that the, the reference for the inquiry were, were, should be. And those referen that reference had none of the following words. It didn't have child, children, babies, toddlers, schools, colleges, preschools, nurseries. It didn't even have the word play in there. And that's what I reflect on our society's soul. Where has it gone? I think it's gone terribly wrong. Mandela also said, though, very upliftingly, that him and his government would use their children to be the rock upon which the future would be built because they saw them as the greatest asset that they had as a nation. That's true from them then, and it's true of us now. So where we are, those words from Mandela, what I'd seen happen in the intervening 25 years made me think I've got this experience now to be able to put together a book that can envisage a better future. That's when I started writing, and I guess as the book's just out now, harvest <laughs> what uh, germinated, and we'll see whether it's got a, a great yield or not. But that's how it started. And I guess the book then, I really had to think, well, what am I trying to say? How can I paint a picture of what's gone wrong and what, what can go right? Really, the book in itself is a challenge to us all as to what success looks like for society. That's my, my big question. Let's rethink. Let's just not take what we're told or what successful society is. Let's rethink because I think we can build this better future. And my answer is in big public policy ideas to help all children um, thrive, have the chance to thrive, because my contention is if they do, then we all benefit. It isn't just children becoming better adults, thriving adults. This isn't just as adults now thriving better in our older age because children thrive through their childhood into adulthood, but also because we value thriving childhoods as part of our society and all the joy that they bring themselves. So the contention from those statistics that I shared just now was that is that far too many of our children don't feel significant, they don't feel confident, and therefore they don't become the people that they've got the potential to be. And as a result, the whole of our society is poorer economically and socially and culturally, and we can change it. We can go back to putting children at the center of public policy, to valuing childhoods, 
to preparing our children to face the world and find the answers to the problems that we're bequeathing to them. And that's what the book does really. As you said, I invited other people to contribute to it, including yourself and your great essay. But what I really did was for two years, researched and wrote about what I saw had gone wrong and what I saw could go right and is going right in some places. So I found examples from other countries where they've had programs and services that help children thrive. I observed their cultures where are already set up to ensure children's well-being. I found examples in this country here um, that we can build upon and we can scale and we can make noise about with local councils or with businesses or charities that, that do help children in local areas thrive. But it's those countless people that I approach like yourself from positions of, of real expertise and knowledge with ideas about what can happen in all these slivers of childhood. It's a great expanse, obviously, but seeing through people like your eyes, what the problem is, what the blockers are and how we can overcome them. And as you say, 68 people wrote essays. Some of them are in the uh, book, some of them are on the accompanying website, and they've shared their experience. And some of these people are from people with positions of great power. There's an ex-prime minister, cabinet ministers, current mayors, children's commissioners, through to academics who are using research to create evidence, to campaigners that are using their voice and their actions to create impact right through to those people with a lived experience of their childhood not thriving through no fault of their own and what they've seen from that, what they've learned from that, what the rest of us can learn from that and some really insightful ideas of how we can change. So my job was to bring all of those things together with this wide variety of, of things across this vast expanse of this subject and see if there were any threads that I could find that weave their way through what everyone was saying. And thank goodness I did find them and I've weaved them together to create something called the National Children's Service, which is the end of my book, which is a different way that we could have a framework for how our government works, who it, it prioritizes, what programs and services it does, how it's paid for, what legislation underpins it. Really, that's how we can build a better future by reframing what we measure success as. Wow. It's a huge amount of work <laughs> gone into doing that. And I was thinking as you were speaking, how did you even know where to start in pulling all of that together? I, I tell you where I started and it's my philosophy of life and it certainly was my philosophy of business and why I think I created such a successful business. And that is the most important thing is relationships in life. And you build relationships if they've got a space to thrive, which is also key, then we can reimagine our futures and we can pull together our collective knowledge to create something greater than our individual people and knowledge. So that's where I started. I thought, I, I know a little bit about this. I have worked in such a diverse set of organizations, got this big network of people. Um, if I tap into the, their expertise, if I encourage them to go on this journey with me, to share what they can, if I can give them a platform for the things that are important to them from the, the sliver of childhood that they've got expertise in, then I think we can make a really impressive picture of childhood and where it's gone wrong, but we can, uh, we can, I can pick out and learn things that, 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 uh, are common to everyone's perspective. 
So that's where really I started. Relationships really matter. When you get into some of the stuff in my book, those early childhood experiences, the early child development stuff, relationships, attachment theory, right at the very beginning of life is so critical for everything else that follows in life. Really strong relationships flow through uh, my book and it's relationships ultimately from the extremes of with the planet and the, the world that we live on right through to with yourself. But anyway, to answer your question, I'm curious, I'm brave enough to reach out to loads of people to see if they say, that's a silly idea, then go for it. Or I'd like to be part of that. And here's my contribution. And then sifting and sorting and making sure that the consistent messages come out. That's where I start. And so you're able to, once you've got that feedback from people, work out what those slivers of childhood are that you mentioned, and they make up the kind of pillars and chapters of the book. Is that right? They do. They do. And I've used a spider's web as an analogy for my National Children's Service framework. But really, the, the spider's web is such a, a, a wonderful construction. The gossamer that, that is the web itself is the strongest material, either you know, man-made or natural in the world, pound for pound. The, the, the shape of the web protects and provides nutrition for the spider and, and, and the family. The way I went through the book is a little bit like how government structures its departments now. There's a chapter on education, there's a chapter on health, a chapter on local spaces, there's 10 or so chapters on different aspects of childhood like that, which in my mind are the struts that the spider puts out first and tethers to really strong parts of the environment that it lives in. But it comes back to the middle, completes those struts, and then creates rings from the outside that bind them together. And so just as the struts, that wouldn't provide sustenance and nutrition or, or security for the spider. And I think that's the, the problem that we've fallen into with the way we structure our institutions, not just government, but all of our big institutions is that they are in silos, that the individual struts and things go between them and the things that go between them, neither of the people responsible for the two struts next to it are, are, care about because it's not their thing. And I think we need these rings that bind together because children, families, the individual, we don't live our lives according to how government sets up its departments. So we constantly flitting between all sorts of aspects of which there are public services for or public responsibility to us for, to keep us safe. And if your individual issue falls between them, then uh, it doesn't get sorted. And when I now have spoken to all of these people that have contributed to my book and all the research that I did, I can see that most of issues fall between those struts. And many of the issues are simply symptoms of bigger issues that effectively are all the struts. What we're doing to our environment, what, do, what does digital mean to children these days? What does poverty, uh, how, where does that impact? Or quality of public health, all things like that are not just to do with those individual areas. The causes of the inequalities around public health are not from within the health service. They're from the environment and work and poverty and ho housing across the, the spectrum of, sort of public services. And likewise, education. One of my SAS uh, head teacher at a, a thousand pupil secondary school, and she's built the, the school's impact on those children around the fact of the knowledge that only 30% of, of what pupils attain academically is really from within the school walls and within the time those kids are at school. 
the other 70% of the effect on their attainment is outside of the school. It's where they live and what family circumstances they've got and what economic circumstances they've got and what options and opportunities they've got to experience different things, uh, positive role models and all sorts of things that aren't really within the school yet. Our education system is designed, is set up through its silo of the education department to deliver uh, attainment exam results. So I've gone a long way around the house to explain how I drew things together, but please uh, get your listeners to consider buying the book, reading it and seeing whether the sliders analogy works. Yeah, absolutely. And to me, it completely does. It's like a holistic look at the environment in which we're growing up in. And I always love that analogy. If you're fish, if you have a fish in a fish tank and the, the tank is dirty and full of brown water and you take the fish out and you fix the fish, you make the fish better again and you put it back into the brown, dirty water. The fish is obviously going to continue to be sick and not thrive. Um, and so I, well, I think it's super important that we look at our environments and everything that we're doing around children. Uh, I'm sorry, and we don't really do that with children. We do it with fish in a fish tank. I had a similar analogy, the introduction. One of the chapters in my books about a, a house plant that I had that wasn't thriving. And I watered it and then I overwatered it and then I moved it to the sun and I moved it back, etc. And it only thrived after I changed the soil. And so I did everything around the plant. What do we do that with our children if they're not thriving? We, do we look at all the circumstances around their lives to help do that? We don't. We could. We once did. Other countries do in, in part, and we can learn from all of that to try and change things going forward. Absolutely. Powerful stuff. So I wanted to play a quick game with you, Paul, if you're open to that. Yeah, okay. Yep. Love a game. So your book has got there's so much information in it. You must have learned a huge amount about childhood and all these different slivers of, ch of childhood, as you've called them, that build out the chapters. I'd love to hear from you one interesting learning, takeaway, or idea from the chapters as I pick them out. How does that okay. sound? Go, go for it. Is it going to test your memory? It's a memory game. I wrote this over three years, but I have <laughs> read it very recently and uh, been thinking about it a lot. So... Exactly. Yeah. Well, I'll just do a couple because I'm obviously very interested in the play chapter, but there are a few that I know cross over, I think, quite significantly with play. So the first one being digital. What one key learning idea? Oh, that's one of the best ideas in there, actually, because, because it's easy to come up with ideas that cost a lot of money for government, especially. And there's an idea in there that has evidence behind it that costs nothing, absolutely nothing. And it is something that I am going to uh, help the people with the idea and see if we can get some legislation around that. So the idea is around literacy and using the digital technology to encourage literacy. So the evidence is that if kids watch programming on television or YouTube, wherever, that has subtitles on by default, their literacy rates go up by 50% um, if they watch a certain amount of television, normal amount of television. So the simple ask is that the media bill and the Broadcasting Act switch around from having to um, push the subtitles on as a user to push them off so they're on by default doesn't take away anyone's choice of whether they have them on or not. And my feeling is like most of these things, there's an 80, 20 rule and 80% of people won't change what's given to them 
which if I hadn't entered into percent will, and, and it will just switch it, switch it the other way around. So 60 more percent more kids will watch television with subtitles on and their literacy will increase and it costs us absolutely nothing to do that. That's so smart. What a no-brainer. Fantastic. Get that done. <laughs> Tick. How about voice? I thought this was a really interesting chapter. Key learning takeaway from voice. Yes. The obvious thing is children don't vote and therefore they have no voice at the table of political decision-making. You might argue their parents do, but ultimately politicians have not prioritized children, I think, because they don't have that voice at the dispatch box, uh, the uh, voter box, and there isn't a voice at the dispatch box because the Minister for Children is way down the pecking order in the government. We've had 12 of them in the last 10 years. They don't want to be children's minister. They want to be prime minister and they don't hang around long enough to make any significant changes, I don't believe. To so I think we need a children's minister coming out of that voice discussion. But that's only in, in the political world of having a voice. Voices within school, so that their thoughts around uh, the how they're doing at school, whether that's the attainment and the exams that they have, and there's lots of ideas around that, whether it's around how the school operates. Charlotte Church wrote an essay in that chapter that is on the back of a school that she has founded herself, which is a totally democratic school. It's largely for kids that are excluded or don't thrive in mainstream school. The school work and the school happens fundamentally outside, but the kids choose the rules. They choose who's employed to teach them, how the um, uh, disciplinary rules are and what they're taught. And she has all sorts of evidence to show that those kids are much more better adjusted into society at the end of school than they would have been if they'd totally been excluded. I think that's, that, that gives them their voice throughout, throughout the, the school life. You know, there are some aspects to our life that children know much more about than we do. We just talked about digital just now. Why they wouldn't be involved and asked and co-create the design of products and services, but also the rules about how they are used is beyond me. And, and, and there's a big call, things like that there. But but voice, knowing that you're important and that you're significant and that you've got an equal voice to, to other people in our society, I think is important to children. And there are ways we can do that better than we do now. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And I'll just ask you one more. How about the early years? The early years in many ways are the most important years. And the thing that I picked up on most in that, and this is where a lot of my work is. I've started a baby food company. I sit on the board of uh, Sesame Street. I, I know that invested in the early years development, especially of children um, living in disadvantage, repays 700% over the lifetime of those children. And we should absolutely be investing there. Attachment theory was something I knew a little bit about, but not a lot about in before writing this book and various experts have written and I'm really convinced that the more we can invest in prenatal preparation for being parents and then those very earliest years, certainly before preschool, before school, but perhaps before preschool, of deepening the attachment between the parent and the child so that the the child can learn from serve and return, they call it, but from two-way interaction 
with their parents. Their carers and their parents can learn from their children and how to get the most out of the joy of their child, but the, the development of their children and learn about themselves too. And really that plays to your essay and so much of your work, especially with play therapy and using the tool of play to deepen those attachments and the early years development. Let me, let me ask you about your essay. You explain your essay to us all because I think it speaks exactly to what I've just spoken about. Yeah, absolutely. The thing that I've always been focused on, this sliver of childhood has been around attachment. And I thought when I started training as a play therapist, that it was about the play that you did that helped children process trauma or express their feelings. But what I quickly learned through my training was that actually, like you said earlier, it was about the relationship between the therapist and the child and helping that child feel safe enough to express their true self through the play. So I suppose I was always coming at it from that mindset of probably being a teacher type thing, the person who tells the child how it works, or you're the person that comes in with and you make it better for them, when actually it's the complete opposite. You allow them to do it for themselves and you reflect back as a mirror and you give them that space once a week for an hour or 45 minutes or whatever it is where it's pure attachment sunshine, where you're predictable, you're always there when you say you'll be, you're consistent, you always do what you say that you will do. The child knows the boundaries, they know how to push them and test them and they also know how you'll respond as a therapist. And this attachment sunshine was really what I wanted to package up and give to parents in treasure time. So my proposition was that as children start primary school, that parents should be given the tools and the skills to be able to do child-led play sessions at home with their child for 30 minutes of attachment sunshine as homework. And like you mentioned, it, the early years work is so important, but it is at school where it tends to get picked up that there may be an issue. And actually, when that starts to happen, I think the research shows that it can take up to 10 years for children to get appropriate support. So I'm thinking, as soon as a child joins school, whether or not they are displaying any types of behaviors that might be seen as problematic, all parents and all children benefit from parents doing one-to-one childbed play at home. Yeah, it's wonderful. And I'd known a, a, a little bit about it before you, you wrote the essay. We've known each other for a while. And uh, what's always really taken me is the extent of the opportunity is well beyond the child development, because I think it's personal development and human development for the parent or the, the carer as well. They learn confidence in that they can parent and, and help their child develop, but they also learn creativity and self-regulation and all the things that the child's learning for themselves, which often right back to the beginning of our conversation, we live in a conforming society where we forget to explore boundaries and we forget to be brave. And, and I think that opens up that opportunity for parents beyond their relationship with their child, their relationship with their work or their social life to give them confidence and creativity and free thinking and, and everything that play opens up from that aspect. I think play is an absolute key thing to unlock the human potential that, that, that our country has. The greatest asset that we have in our children's potential itself, but, it, but in all of us, play is a lifelong thing. And, you know, we have found that for whatever reason, at the moment, we have less spaces to play. We have less time to play in childhood that has been taken out of break times that are, are in secondary school over an hour shorter 
across a week than they were a decade ago. And so much of our play these days is structured either by the parent to the child and taking them to a ballet class or a football class or something like that, which is seen as play, but the child is, doesn't choose for the rules or what they're actually doing, or it's commercialized in that the children are playing with something that already has a personality because it's a power ranger or it's already got a personality or that it is designed digitally by someone often in say the, the West coast of the U S that kind of will pass on that person's, that designer's messages, personality, way of thinking already set out for the children. So more free play, the better and what you've proposed helps us all. So well done. I'm really proud that you did that and that it's in the book for us all to see. Thank you. I'm, I'm so thrilled to be um, featured in the book. And I think one of the things that's come out from me from doing this process and the process of writing and researching, I've obviously been doing this for a long time, but I think what happened in the space of play and children's mental health is that, and I'll be really interested to see what you think about this, but I, th I feel like we're conflating or confusing mental health with emotional distress in children. And rather than sort of recognizing this child is emotionally dysregulated or this child, is, this is a child in distress, what are the things that I can do as a parent, that I can be empowered to do at home rather than outsourcing the power all the time to a, sort of a mental mm. health team before, before we get, before we're there, because actually when we can do the emotional regulation piece early on, it won't progress to mental health problems. And then that's where that burden on. The, the NHS, that's how we can solve some of the problems that we have, actually. Yeah. I think there's two aspects to that I absolutely 100% agree with. One is preventative rather than treatment. And as you just alluded to, we to, to be able to pay for stuff, we, we have to get much better than that. But the beauty is AI and predictive science and data science and things are, are all, all are there to be able to help us. There's obviously dangers with some of this stuff, but they're there to help us. And the second thing is that so many of the issues that children face today, parents aren't experienced with or confident at being their parent that they're expected to be, and they're not getting the support from our public services or from communities, mm -hmm. people who are more isolated than they were before, to be able to do that. Consequences, many parents feel under pressure of being seen to not be the parent that they want to be seen as or that they can be because they don't have that support. And in any case, with a world that is volatile and uncertain and complex and ambiguous and we crisis follows crisis, there is toxic stress in families. Yes, with the mental health challenges and the um, lives that children are living now, but many of that is passed on from parents who are struggling to put food on the table or, or, or shelter with the cost of living crisis and, and the increase in poverty and everything. Children now are, are playing much closer to home for shorter periods of time than my generation did, where we were outside much longer and much further from the front door uh, than children are now, because parents want to take danger out of the way. They want to know where they are. The roads aren't as safe. The, the perception of safety is different, but that's all very close. They're trying to control that. Yet their children spend a lot of time online where, frankly, most parents haven't got a clue how far from home base their children are going. And there are all the risks of content and conduct, contacts, commercial risks that are out there. And parents are frightened or angry or just don't know what to do 
and they're relying on our regulation and our laws and the goodwill of the, the social media companies and stuff, none of which are adequate for protecting our children. And so I can see why the stress of parenting and the need to be able to know that you can do something without looking elsewhere, where elsewhere often doesn't have the solution, is something that we will help more children thrive. We help more parents be more confident about parenting in a very complicated, uncertain world. And what strikes me as well is that actually what children need, children don't need actually a, a lot to be able to thrive. It almost is like we need less. We need more contact, more community, more connection, less distraction, less. It's advanced and changed so much, hasn't it? So quickly. It is. And I think it comes back to my fundamental question that I'm trying to answer in writing the book is what does success look like? I say for a society, let's say for a family, there is that you need to be able to live and live off what you can earn, but you need love and you need to be able to learn and you'll be able to need to find passions about things. And the way we can do that, I think is through deepening relationships, whether that's with ourselves and our own mental health, with our family and friends and meaningful relationships, whether it's with broader society and tolerances of things we don't see every day, we might not agree with and getting to, to, to accept or understand them. And then with the wider world and how our place is our relationship with everything else that isn't human, that impacts us and ultimately our environment. That's the thing I'd ask people to take away. Well-being, the well-being of our children depends on relationships. And we've got an opportunity to deepen them right now, add variety to their experiences, add a voice so that they can contribute to how their lives get shaped. But that's really the heart of my book. Fantastic. And so where can people find your book, Paul? And where can they find out more? They can find out more at raisingthenation.co.uk, which is the companion website. There's some essays on there that aren't in the book. There's links to the book and there's an uh, explanation about it. It's available from all good bookshops, both online and in real life. It is a book that doesn't claim to have all the answers. It raises questions. It shares ideas that could be the answers. But really what I hope is that it stimulates imaginations. It creates curiosity for people to digest what's in there, to agree or disagree with it, but to contribute to the conversation as to how we can make um, our future better for our children and everybody else. Ideas are the one thing that we are not limited by as human beings. So let's share as many as possible. Let's jump on the good ones. And let's see if we do agree that thriving childhoods are good for society, let's prioritize them and let's at least have the conversation as to how we can make them better and get to a place again where we can reveal our society's soul and be proud of the way we treat our children. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me today, Paul. It's been lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much for having me and contributing to what we've been discussing. And that's it for today's podcast. I hope you really enjoyed the conversation as much as I did with Paul and found it enlightening and inspiring too. If you're a parent looking to create stronger connections and nurture your child's well-being, I've got something special for you. I want to introduce you to Treasure Time, an innovative digital play course designed to teach emotional development through child-led play, my favourite thing. Imagine strengthening your relationship with your child, reducing stress and fostering a happy, healthy family dynamic all through the magic of play. Treasure Time offers bite-sized, fun instructional videos, engaging play dates and evidence-based techniques to improve communication with your child. By taking part in Treasure Time, you'll get six play dates to build that strong relationship with your child. 
You'll not only become a black belt play ninja, but you'll also gain valuable skills to enhance your child's emotional literacy and your own confidence in setting boundaries, being playful, and finding new ways to communicate with your child. Having a strong relationship with your child has so many positive effects, including reducing power struggles, fewer challenges in getting your child to listen to you or to cooperate with what you want, fewer emotional outbursts, and when they do happen, you have more skills to help regulate yourself and your child. And the best benefit of all is a stronger, deeper connection with your child that will last throughout their lifetime. It's a transformative journey that lots of parents have already experienced. So if you're ready to embark on this exciting adventure with Treasure Time, just head over to the website today, treasuretime.co.uk. Use the code podcast for an extra 10% off the price and you'll get access to the full course today. It's a small investment for a lifetime of benefits. It's your guide to raising an emotionally intelligent child and it's just one click away. Remember, this is not just about play, it's about creating lasting connections and helping your child to grow up happy. Visit treasuretime.co.uk and start your playful journey today. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, keep playing, keep connecting and keep making those precious moments count. If you enjoyed this episode of the Treasure Time podcast, please head over to Apple or Spotify and leave us a five-star review and a comment so that we can reach more parents who are interested in learning about the power of play. See you next time.